Get out your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah. That's where our study will come from this evening. I'm so glad to see you this evening. Glad to be studying uh, with you. As got ahead of myself. Uh, as we're here to study God's Word, I hope that you'll follow along. We're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we went through the book of Ezra about two weeks ago and saw the message of that book. And I think it's it's very helpful for us to look at these uh, books in, in a way that's more overview than getting into the details. Because we really need to know these messages as we're studying through the prophets and we've been seeing Ezekiel and Jeremiah and uh, the sins of the people and the, the need for them to go into exile and then Daniel, the period of the exile, to now see what happens on the other side of the exile. I think really helps us to, to see the lessons that they were supposed to be learning and also to, to understand more about what God has in store for us as He, as he lets us see some of the preparations that He's making uh, before He He brings His anointed one and uh, accomplishes the overall mission that He has that's been building up since the beginning of time. Uh, In Nehemiah, we have a contemporary of Ezra. So the the story of Ezra had Zerubbabel building the temple in the first uh, seven chapters. And then we, we fast forwarded 50 or 60 years to the time of Ezra. And we learned about God restoring not just the temple, but also beautifying it and restoring His Word and restoring His people. And, and that they become repentant of their sins. Uh, if we were to look at Nehemiah, what we see is he's a contemporary. He, he's living at the same time as Ezra. Uh, at, Nehemiah actually mentions Ezra in his book. He comes in shortly after Ezra has returned to Jerusalem. And what we see if we just look at it from a 10,000 foot perspective is uh, Nehemiah comes in to do three things. He comes in to rebuild the city in chapter, chapters 1 through 6 by building up the walls around the city. Uh, the walls of the city are essentially what demark a city as being an actual city. Without walls, it's just uh, a bunch of houses out in the open. Uh, so it, he, he establishes the city. And then he rebuilds the community. And we see that in the next section starting in chapter 7 and going all the way through chapter 11, uh, rebuilding the people as a covenant community uh, in relationship with God. And then the last two chapters, we see him rebuilding the priesthood. So he rebuilds the city, and then he, he kind of narrows down and says, I'm rebuilding the people and the community. And then he narrows down a little bit more and says, I'm rebuilding the priesthood. And this, this is kind of the flow of the text as we go through. Uh, you'll see that. Whenever we start uh, in this book to rebuild the city, what we see is uh, that Nehemiah is actually not in Jerusalem at the time. He starts out uh, in the citadel of Persia and Susa, and he is there uh, serving and, and doing his work when all of a sudden bad news comes in uh, from his brother uh, who is from Jerusalem. This bad news is essentially that uh, Jerusalem is still desolate. I mean, yeah, the temple's been built uh, and and beautified, but it's still desolate. I mean, the gates are burned, uh, the the stones are burned, everything's still laying in ruins, and the people are just stepping over it, and they're unable to do anything uh, to to help the situation. And Ezra actually shed light on this and, and told us about the surrounding nations sending letters to Artaxerxes and his 
in his sixth year, uh, saying that Jerusalem, they're trying to rebuild that city, and that's been a rebellious city all the time, and you, you can't let them do that. And so Artaxerxes put a stop to that and said, don't build the city until I say Uh, And here we have news coming to Nehemiah in the city of Susa that the work has not gone on and that the city still lays desolate. Even though it's got a temple, it's still there desolate. A hundred years after the people have been allowed to return from captivity. Uh, That's just demoralizing. To know that you've been allowed to return and that a temple's been built and you've seen God working on some level, but to see that you can't do anything further, that nothing else has been done, uh, that the city that you love is still destroyed, and your people and yourself are ashamed of this. I mean, you're God's people and God's supposed to rebuild this city and do all these wonderful things. He hasn't done anything. Uh, It's just been a temple that's been built and that's it. So Nehemiah is very discouraged about this. And we see him uh, mourning and weeping and offering up prayers and fasting. Uh, and his prayer is very similar to what we read in Daniel and, and Ezra. Uh, prayer confessing their sins and asking for God to act to help this situation. Uh, and, and also to give him mercy as he's about to go and do something. Uh, it's interesting, as we get into chapter 2, we learn some very important information about Nehemiah and why it is that, that this book is named after him and why it is that he is the one that's so important. Nehemiah was given a position in the kingdom of Persia as a cupbearer for the king. Now, a cupbearer is somebody who takes the king's wine and uh, he, he prepares it and then he, he tastes it in front of the king so that the king knows it's not poisoned. <laughs> Well, that sounds like a great job, doesn't it? Uh, you know, you get to eat the king, drink the king's wine, that's good, but what about the poison? Uh, so this is his responsibility. So this is a man who has been considered trustworthy and been given this high position. This is a high position in the kingdom. And we read that four months after he had heard the news, he is now going to be given an opportunity to go before the king, and he has made up his mind to go before the king And allow the king to see him being sad. Now at first that's like, well, okay, what's the big deal? But think about that. You're the cupbearer and you show up and you let the king see that you're distraught and that you're upset about something. Now, do you think a king wants to see that in this cupbearer? No, he doesn't want to see that. Uh, And so the king can just say, well, kill him because I'm scared of him now. Uh, You know, he may be... Upset because he's been blackmailed or something. Who knows what's going on? So he allows for the king to see that he's upset, knowing that it's a risk to do this. And the king responds by asking, "Why? Why? Why is your face sad? You're sick. You're not sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart. What, what's going on with you?" And Nehemiah uh, quickly responds, being afraid, and says, "Let the king live forever." Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So Nehemiah lays it all out. 
And the king responds, what, what are you requesting? He's got the, the queen sitting next to him and Nehemiah's been given this opportunity now. The king says, what are you requesting? So he says a prayer to God and then he goes and he asks the king uh, for materials and uh, enough material to rebuild the wall and to rebuild his house. And the king provides that and he provides support and army, uh, uh, some troops to help him to get there. So... Nehemiah says this little prayer and God provides an opportunity for him to go into the land with all these materials and he ends up becoming essentially the governor over that area. Uh, so he shows up in Jerusalem with all, this, all these materials and he spends three days there. And he goes around the wall by night not letting anybody know why he's there or what he's doing. And he, it, it's, it's in ruins. It's destroyed. He's, he's taking a survey of all this. And he's seeing the devastation. It's so bad that he can't even ride his donkey around the city. He has to get off and climb over the rubble in order to get around this city that's just still laying in ruins a hundred years after they were able to return from captivity. This place is still completely destroyed. And he gets to the the people, he assembles them on the third day, and he says, You see what trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And all the people say, let us rise up and build. And they strengthened one another uh, to do the work. But enemies hear about this. And and this is a a scary time uh, because enemies have not allowed this to go on. And they're seeing this all go on. Uh, But the people don't care about that at this time. They're going to rise up and build. And chapter 3 is all about them rising up and building all around the city. You've got everybody coming and building all around the city, each one taking a section around the city, all the way from the high priest to the foreigner. There's even uh, people from Jericho who are there building. There's perfumers who are building. There's goldsmiths who are building. Everybody has a part to play in building up this wall uh, for the city of Jerusalem. Well, these enemies did not like that at all. And when we get to chapter 4, we, we read about uh, Sanballat. Uh, the Horonite. And this is what it says. When Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So the people uh, who are around them, their enemies, were jeering at them and mocking them and making fun of them and and trying to discourage them from the work that they were doing and and trying to poke at them to try to, to, to cause them to stop or to cause them to maybe retaliate. And instead of retaliating, they just point to God and they say, God, hear them and you give them the justice that they deserve. They do not uh, focus on them. Instead, they set their minds to do the work that God has given them to do and they let God handle it. Well, this just makes the enemy even more mad. Uh, So the enemy decides they're going to attack and the news gets to the 
to those in Jerusalem. And they still got some areas that are breached. So they set up troops in those areas. And everybody takes their weapon in their right hand. And they're all sitting there trying to build with a weapon in their right hand. But while they're doing that, while they're trying to build, news comes from all the surrounding towns and their families uh, saying, they're, they're going to attack you. You've got to get out of there. You've you got to save yourself. And Nehemiah has to calm everybody down and say, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah encourages the people to remember their brothers and their sisters who need these walls to be built. And if they give up, then they're not trusting in the Lord who has provided them with this opportunity to rebuild the walls. And so he encourages the people and they decide that they're going to continue to do the work. And that's exactly what they do. They keep working and working until half of the, bo- half of the wall is, is built carrying their spears in one hand and, and lifting up the bricks in the other. They don't even change clothes uh, because they're, they're always on watch, always making sure that everybody is safe. Well, as the story continues, uh, things another problem pops up in chapter 5. Uh, all of a sudden, it's not so much about the enemies on the outside. Now there's some conflict on the inside. Uh, Some of the people who are poorer are dealing with a lot of struggles because there's a famine in the land. And they've been mortgaging their fields and their vineyards. They've been selling their children as slaves just in order to eat as they are building up this wall. And Nehemiah hears about this and he is upset. He's enraged at the fact that their own people are taking out, uh, or, or getting them mortgages, or, or taking loans, and, and charging interest, and, and taking as slaves children of Israel. This doesn't, this doesn't line up with the law at all. So he's upset about this, and he tells them, how can you do this? We just got out of captivity. How can you again enslave uh, the children of Israel? And he says they must repent and change, and they, they say they'll do that. And so Nehemiah uh, has this scene where he's, he, he takes the robe and he shakes it out. And he says, if you don't do what you promise, may God shake you out. And so he stands up for the poor and he, he rebukes those who are rich. And he makes sure that, that the work is able to continue unhindered because of the selfishness of the people. And as we keep going, we find that the enemies take on another tactic. <laughs> problem after problem in the work process. But they take on another tactic. Instead of the frontal assault, now they're going to try to be sneaky. Now they're going to hire people uh, to go and to send a message saying, Nehemiah, come out here and talk with us. And he's like, I'm not talking to you. Uh, you know, I'm not going to come out there. I've got work to do. I'm busy. Uh, don't be distracting me. And then they, they, they pay off a prophet to say, uh, we're, we're, they're going to attack us. We have to run to the temple and hide. And Nehemiah says, how can I do that? How can I do that and sin against the Lord? So they're conspiring. They're trying to cause Nehemiah to have fault. Uh, that he might not find favor in the Lord. And in spite of all of these obstacles, the walls which laid in ruins... For 170 years were rebuilt in 52 days. 52 days of devotion uh, that, that was in the midst of obstacles, in the midst of distractions and discouragements. 
The people had a mind to work and Nehemiah led the people fearlessly to do the work that God had given them to do. And the the city is now rebuilt. But that's not the end of the story, right? That's a happy ending, but that's not the end of the story. Whenever we get to chapter 7, we read in verse 4 that the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. (laughs) So the walls are, are built, but inside of those walls there's a temple and then there's just destruction throughout. So so the work is not over yet. Yeah, the walls have been built, but now comes the hard part. Building all of these houses and communities back up. And the people who live there right now are very few because there haven't been walls up until this point. So in chapter 7 we see Nehemiah assembling the people in order to to pay attention to the genealogies that were taken by Zerubbabel in order to to get order of who all has now uh, members of the people of Israel who is descended from these returned exiles in chapter 7 and then in chapter 8 while they're all gathered together he says Let's get the word out and let's let's have Ezra read the law. So he has Ezra read the law and, and he makes it very clear to all the people what the law means, that the people can understand what the law says. And as they're hearing the law being read to them, they start weeping and mourning over their sins and, and how, how wrong they have been in the past. And Ezra and Nehemiah stop, stand in and say, no, 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 don't be grieved today. Today is a day of great rejoicing because your mourning and your weeping bring joy to the Lord. Your humility is bringing joy to the Lord. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. So we can, we can rejoice in this day. And they have a feast about the, the joy of the Lord and the fact that God has sent them back from captivity in order to rebuild and to restore. And that's exactly what they do. And then we get into chapter 9, and this is where the people confess all of their sins. They, they bring up all the work that God has done for them in, in restoring them and in, in bringing them out of Egypt and giving them all the blessings that He's always promised and, and also cursing them in order to rebuke them and bring them back to Him. His steadfast love and His mercy has been consistent. And they point all of this out and they make it very clear that they now want to serve God faithfully. So they they decide in chapter 10 to make a covenant with God. They say that they're going to obey, observe all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and His rules and His statutes. It sounds a whole lot like Deuteronomy when the people say, yes, everything that you said we will do. This is how the people feel at this time, that they are going to be determined to do everything that that God's Word says. They're not going to give their daughters uh, or sons to the peoples of the land. Uh, They're not going to... use their crops past the seventh year. They're going to give their crops rest. They're going to give their offerings. They're going to give their first fruits, their firstborn. They're going to bring uh, tithes for all the Levites. And they're not going to neglect the house of the Lord, their God. Their God, And they're not going to take advantage of the Sabbath and, and sell and buy goods on the Sabbath. And everything sounds wonderful. So in chapter 11, finally, we're, we're able to conclude the section 
with Nehemiah having kind of a lottery of people, you know, casting lots to see who it is that's going to get to come and live inside of the city from the surrounding towns. Everybody is living in surrounding towns around Jerusalem, and one in ten of all these Israelites are now going to get the opportunity to come live in the city and help with the rebuilding process. And then we get to chapter 12. Chapter 12 transitions again very similarly to how it did in chapter 7. In chapter 7, he started out telling us the genealogy of all the people. And now he tells us about the genealogy of the Levites. He goes into this specific area of the Levites and points out the Levites who returned with Zerubbabel and also all the Levites who were there at this time. And and he's recounting... uh, these Levites in order to talk about the work that they are to do. And it's interesting, whenever we look throughout scriptures, throughout the history of the Israelites, the Levites are not paid much attention to, right? You, you've got the picture of them becoming Levites, and then you've got uh, some really bad Levites talked about in the Judges, and, and there's, not, there's, there's not a whole lot about the Levites until you get to David, and then it just kind of skips and doesn't talk about them. But this is one of those points where it really focuses in on the Levites. And he says that they are being set up again and established again in order to worship God. Uh, First of all, by the dedication of the wall. And they set up the musical instruments and the singers to go around the wall and to sing. And they do everything according to the command of David. In Ezra, they were setting up everything according to the command of Moses and the, the law of Moses. And in Nehemiah, they read the law of Moses. But then in the Levites, it's according to the command of David. They go back to the time of David. Because the tabernacle, they worshiped one way with the Levites. And then when the temple was built, David established the way they ought to worship. And that's, that's what he does. He sets up the Levitical priesthood to conduct the worship and the services at the temple. So everything seems to be good. The book should be over now. Right? Twelve is a good number. We should just end the book. There should be no chapter 13. And wow, God has rebuilt the city. He has rebuilt the community. He has rebuilt the priesthood. Look at all these things that God has done for His people. But that's not how it is. Chapter 13 is, is here to help us understand things a little bit better, a little bit deeper. In chapter 13, we skip ahead 12 years uh, to the reign of Artaxerxes, the 32nd year. We went from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. And around this time, Nehemiah has had to go back to the city of Susa, and he has now returned back to Jerusalem. Apparently he had to give some report. Now he's come back to Jerusalem. And what he finds is very discouraging and disheartening. Everything has fallen apart in 12 years' time or however long it was that he was gone. He may not have been gone 12 years. He may have been gone only like six months. But anyway, while he was gone, he sets up his brother and and he leaves and everything falls apart. Uh, Everybody agreed to the commandment that they need to separate from the Ammonites and the Moabites. But the, the priests are allowing an Ammonite, Tobiah of all people, one of the enemies 
to set up a room in the temple that is for all of his stuff. And he, he shows up and sees all this and he tears it all out and he throws it all out and he says, we have to cleanse the temple, you've defiled the temple. Uh, but that's not it. He doesn't just have to deal with them defiling the temple. It turns out the Levites had not been given their portion. They'd not been given uh, their 10% that was supposed to help them to survive. So they're off doing other work. They're off tending to fields. And everything is falling apart because nobody's being taught the Word. Whenever we get to Malachi, this is what we're going to see. They're not teaching. There's no teaching going on. So everybody is doing whatever because nobody knows what the Word of God teaches. But not only that, they're also profaning the Sabbath. They said they would not profane the Sabbath, and here they are allowing people to come in and buy and sell on the Sabbath. So he sets up the Levites to to be on guard. Whenever the evening of Friday comes, that no one would be allowed in the temple, uh, in in the city walls for buying or selling. And if they showed up, he he would run them off, or he would have them put in prison. And perhaps the most scary of all, Uh, was saved for last when we read that once again they're choosing to marry women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Uh, They're they're intermarrying with the foreign idolatrous women uh, who are around them and so much so that the kids don't even know the the language uh, that the Hebrews are supposed to be speaking. And they're not educated at all about the history of the Hebrews. And even the son-in-law of the high priest has married with someone of, uh, uh, was, who was associated with Sambalat the Horonite. So there's a connection with another enemy that, that takes place. Everything is falling apart. What, what is going on? This was such a good story. Why did you mess this up? <laughs> I want the fairy tale ending, not this. Verse 29 of chapter 13. Nehemiah says, Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duty of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Throughout this story, we see Nehemiah has been provided. Uh, he has been providing for them when the poor uh, were, were struggling and when there was a famine in the land. He provided of his own food that was being given to him by the king that 150 people might be fed. And here we see he's setting everything in order. He's establishing the priesthood. He's cleansing it. He is doing everything he can to make this people into what God desires for them to be. The story is about Nehemiah's work with Israel. And we see at the end that it is, in fact, uh, a, a good light that is shed on Nehemiah. It's a bad light shed on all the people, but Nehemiah does the work that he has been given to do. So what what is the message for us in this book? Why did we go through all of these 13 chapters? Well, it's important that we see that last point that I made, that Nehemiah is God's rebuilder. Because he turns out to be a a great representation of the work that God is ultimately planning to to accomplish through Jesus when Jesus comes 
to the earth. Jesus is going to provide us with a city, uh, make us a covenant community, and He's going to make us into a pure priesthood. Those ideas are very much repeated in the New Testament. But more than that, Jesus has come down to this earth in order to rebuild us. That's why He came to the earth. That He might create a new people that, is, that are rebuilt, uh, that are not broken down because of their sin and their follies and their failures. He wanted to reestablish God's people. In Isaiah chapter 61, this is, this is quoted by Jesus or spoken by Jesus in Luke 4. But He says in Isaiah 61, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound." to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garments of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. This picture that we have of Nehemiah is very similar to the idea that Jesus has, except Jesus' rebuilding is not so much about the structure of a city and, and, and the, the building of a wall, as it is about rebuilding the people, that they would become a people who are no longer brokenhearted by the things that, that are going on in their lives. They're no longer taken captive uh, by the sins that are ensnaring them. And instead of having ashes on their head, they have gladness and mourn, the oil of gladness and mourning, the garment of praise and the crown uh, being put on their head. This is a picture for us of what God wants to do through Jesus to rebuild His people who are broken down and poor of spirit to make them into something that is no longer ashamed of themselves, but now boasts in the Lord and what the Lord has done for them. And this is the picture that, that Nehemiah is trying to give us of Jesus. It's amazing the number of parallels that we see between Nehemiah and Jesus. Think about this. Like Nehemiah... Jesus comes in to bring us rest. That's what Nehemiah is providing in building up the walls. Rest, security. Nehemiah asked for nothing in return for himself except to be remembered for good. That's all that he asked for in the whole book. And that's very much what we see in Jesus. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. And he finishes the work he was sent to do. And that's what we see Nehemiah doing. He is completing the work on the community, the the walls in the city, uh, and the priesthood. Also, Nehemiah was conspired against and plotted against by people that he had done nothing evil toward. Uh, they They were malicious and slanderous against him. And he didn't retaliate or sin. Instead, he kept doing what glorifies God, even though it was hard, and even though he was being mocked and ridiculed for doing it. Jesus and Nehemiah both looked out for the poor. They both rebuked the rich. 
And Jesus, like Nehemiah, was always seeking to remove the shame that God's people had brought to His name and bring about His glorification. There's there's an excellent image here of a leader who is like the ultimate leader that God is going to set up in the end. Uh, and that's, that's what we see in this text, a beautiful parallel of what God is bringing, the leader that is needed for us to become a glory to God. And that's, that's interesting as we think about ourselves. And what is the parallel to us in this story? Well, the simple parallel is to say that this is a story that is an image of God's purpose for us to rebuild the city we live in. And I've heard like sermon series on this, and it's pretty interesting to think about. That, that we are here to rebuild those who are around us. And uh, Isaiah 61 verse 4, after calling us oaks of righteousness, uh, the planting of the Lord that He may be glorified, He says that they shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities. The devastation of many generations. The work that God has given us to do is a work of rebuilding and restoration. But it's not just about building up, you know, building uh, skyscrapers in the city or whatever that is. It's about the same kind of rebuilding Jesus was doing. Jesus isn't about rebuilding the broken things that are temporary on this earth, He's about rebuilding the people who are broken, who are poor in spirit, who are weak, who are suffering. And this is the work we're being given as well. That we would rebuild those who are around us who are in need. And very much that is an image of what we see in the book of Nehemiah. But the thing that I see in chapter 13 makes me think that the purpose of this book is not just that. But that there's a bigger purpose here. This is a story primarily warning us about our failure uh, that is coming. Chapter 13 is a picture of what God's people do. What, What God's people have always done in the Old Testament. It's very much what we can do if we're not careful. This is... We are prone to doing the same thing they do. The leader leaves for a time... And that means it's time to play. (laughs) That means it's time to to neglect the Word of God and neglect the things that God has given us to do. What, What we see these people doing is they're neglecting all these commandments that they said we will observe them and we will do is very much what we can find ourselves doing. Just neglecting, just drifting away. We're just... Talked about this in Hebrews not too long ago. This is what we do. We just, we just don't look up and see where we are uh, and how far we've drifted. And before we know it, we're way down the line. This is a picture for us of how God works to build everything up for us. And we just throw it away. It's what we do. How in the world are we supposed to avoid this? I mean, there's a warning here in this text letting us know this is what we do. All the Old Testament has this as a message. This is what we do. This is what the Israelites did in the wilderness over and over again. And this is what even the returned exiles who have experienced all of this 
with their ancestors who know what this results in, the captivity and the punishment and the suffering, they're still doing it. How do we avoid this catastrophe? We must stop. We must never stop being rebuilt by God. We must never stop being rebuilt by God. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 9. This was in their confession. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26. He says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. This is, this is what the story is throughout all of the time of Israel. And they pointed out very clearly in their confession that this is what we have always done. And yet what do they find themselves doing at the end of this book? But the same thing. They have rest. And they think everything's fine. And then they're done. Our work is never finished on this earth. That's the point of all of this. The work is never finished. We can never sit back and take it easy in this life because the rest is promised to us after this life is over. And as soon as we get rest here, we don't know how to handle it. (laughs) When things go good for us and everything goes easily for us, we don't know how to remain faithful and continue to press on and to do more and more and more for God because we get satisfied with what we're doing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is what Paul says. that He points out, this is how God's people are supposed to be. This is how we live on this earth. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The picture of a Christian is a picture of one who is suffering like Christ has suffered, who is taking up their cross, who is following Christ and doing everything they can to rebuild those around them that they might know and glorify God. Just as Nehemiah did, just as Jesus does for us. This is our our calling, this is our goal. And in verse 16 of chapter 4 he says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
You think that after these people built all their houses and stuff, maybe that's when it was that they rested. Their houses were built. They were comfortable now. Everything is good. Well, the way that a a Christian is illustrated for us in the New Testament is that our work is a continual thing that we will press on every day of our lives. Working for the Lord, doing all that we can to restore the ruined people who are all around us. God has provided us with a leader who goes before us, who shows us His great mercy and His great love and His desire to have everyone who is lost found. He has given us a good shepherd who tends to His sheep, who is with us as we live this life, as we endure the great sufferings, as we're faced with distractions and discouragements that that tear us away from the work that we're trying to do. He is there with us showing us, I am doing work all the time. Work with me. Do what it is that we have been called to do. If anybody here tonight has not uh, submitted to the will of God and and put on Christ and the, the riches of the glory that He promises us when this life is over, if you've not began your work and your labor of love for the Lord, we want to help you do that any way that we can. This is not a a one-day decision, though. This is something that is a lifelong endeavor, that you are serving the Lord, that you are rebuilding those who are around you who are broken, and that you yourself are being rebuilt and being restored by the Word of God as, as it affects your heart and changes your life. If anybody here tonight has not put on Christ and received the blessings that He offers and you know what you need to do, please come as we